Hello. Oh, hi, John. Who is this? This is Dan. Dan? What's up? Oh, Dan. How's Seattle? How is everything uh, going oh. up there? I read things. Hi, I heard damn. heard the weather has changed. I read an article about Bigfoot. What's going on there? Uh, well, this is the season. This is the time of the season for loving. Yeah. Uh, but it is, uh, yeah, we're in that. So everybody that lives in the Northwest knows a couple of things. Actually, people that live in the Northwest are very wise. They know a lot of things. Uh-huh. And part, part of that is because we use every part of the Buffalo. <laughs> and the reason for that is that you cannot ever know when you walk out of the house in the morning, what environment you're walking into. And I don't mean that you can't look out the window and know what it looks like. I mean that between the time you walk out of the house in the morning and when you come home at night, the temperature may uh, fluctuate by 25 degrees sure. on the Fahrenheit scale. Uh-huh. It could, uh, it could rain. It could wind. It could hail. It could be super bright and sunny and clear. Um, all of this could happen within the space of the time when you went into your appointment and when you came out. And so it's, um, it's the, it's the time of the year where everyone has to remember that they live in, um, they live in a place that's per- really perched on the edge of the earth. Okay. Seattle has domesticated a lot in the last couple of decades and it fools people into thinking that it's a normal place, just a normal city in a normal temperate climate full of just regular normal people. But really it's an outpost. It's an outpost <clears throat> in the same way that San Antonio will always, <clears throat> excuse me, will always just be a Pueblo. Mm-hmm. I mean, they can put a million people there, but it's San Antonio is just, it's only supposed to be a, like a, a little mission church and, <laughs> and a, a place to water your horse, you know? All right. Sure. S- Seattle is a place that you used to put in your dugout canoe and, uh, like trade clams with the other people. Uh huh. It's, it's really what it's, it's what, what it's intended to be. And all the streets and all the sewer systems and all the electric lights in the world can't change the fact that. God has it out for this place. And um, why do you say it has it out for it? Why? <clears throat> because just the oh, weather I, is different every day. Well, and you know, the Pacific ocean is a big ocean. Yeah. Which is Some the biggest ocean? The, do you know? The Pacific ocean. It's the biggest of all. It's a, the biggest ocean. Okay. It's a very, very large ocean. And it has, uh, we spend a lot of time in this country focusing on the hurricane season in Florida and the Gulf of Mexico as being the most extreme weather conditions. And they are. But it's only because all of the things that are happening in the Pacific Ocean are just happening out there. There's no Florida sticking down into it to catch all the debris. So, there are cyclones that would turn your hair white just to think about them, just to read the statistics happening in the Pacific, but nobody notices or cares. 
because it's out there and the only thing it's affecting are some seabirds mm-hmm. and maybe a giant garbage raft. <laughs> but the but the the hangover from those things come up here and just sort of they don't pummel the northwest. They just represent a steady sort of constant place where where old battles battles long fought sort of drop their remnants here mm. it, it's one of the things that that makes it so wonderful here and we used to we used to feel kind of like disgruntled because it was so warm and sunny other places but now that other places are all covered with forest fires and dust storms and right. other you know plagues of grasshoppers like the signs of the apocalypse are all we're, around we're, us. We have a plague of uh, crickets this time. I think it's like every two years, uh, crickets swarm over all of Austin. And you can walk wow. up to a, you know, a drugstore or a building. And this is the weird thing. You'd think they'd be like up in the trees. Maybe they are. But they all flock to cover the walls and entryways of buildings. And they completely cover it. I'm going to send you a picture while we chat of, uh, of what this looks like. We get the, we get those kind of weird plagues here from time to time. Yeah. Well, and you know, and Austin of course is one of those places that shouldn't support a population, uh, anywhere near just from a standpoint of how much water and food you're capable of producing. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, Austin should, is, should also still be just a cowboy town with about 12,000 people in it. Mm. Up here, we can, we could feed everybody. I think we have a, we have a, uh, a, a naturally, um, fecund land. Uh, so in the event that all the power grids went down, I mean, this is the way we think now, right? And I, I don't know if, I don't think my parents ever thought this way, but like if everything went to shit, would we, how would, how hard would it be to feed everybody? Right, I mean, it would be really hard. Yeah. Are there a lot of pl- are there a lot of modern cities that could anyway? Hmm. I was just talking with Merlin uh, earlier, and and you know they have this thing going on over there in California. It's not affecting him, uh, where they basically just PG and E turned off everyone's power because of the risk of fire and the wind, and so just everyone's power's off in whatever area <laughs> they needed to do that in. So like. Part of California <laughs> just has no power right now. And that's their that's their new their new way to avoid setting all of California on fire is I, to just turn off the I power. I guess. Uh, <laughs> and then the the other aspect to it was that that uh, that you know like all Merlin was mentioning all of their water comes from somewhere else. They wouldn't even have water to drink yeah. if it wasn't pushed down in a giant pipeline for hundreds of miles. Or well, more. that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I, I feel like I feel like uh, like for instance, Chicago is an enormous city, right? But it is surrounded by very fertile land, uh, fertile land that, you know, all of, um, all of like Illinois, Indiana, uh, Wisconsin, uh, Iowa, Minnesota. I mean, other than the cities, other than the big towns, all of that is, those states are kind of, there's a lot of land there that's, that's given over to agriculture and probably pretty inefficiently given over to arc, uh, to agriculture in, in a lot of areas. I know there's some, there are new practices being practiced, but you know, it's, there's a lot of land 
being used to farm feed for mm. animals and so forth. Right. But like the land around Chicago land, it is capable of growing food without um, industrial food growing technology. Like it doesn't require bringing water from thousands of miles away. It doesn't require, uh, you, you could, and, and whether or not you could feed all of Chicago land, if the grid went down, probably not. They're going to mm. be, they're going to be mass, mass die off Stan, but you could live in Chicago and, uh, and survive, I think off of the, the land in the environment, the nearby uh, given some mass deaths that would kind of call out the, the week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think you could here in Seattle, we have abundant seafood. There is uh, there's a lot of land that is given over to cultivation and a lot more land that's kind of fallow that could be cultivated. But in California, if the, if the water shuts down and the power shuts down, yeah, you're just on a, I mean, all that stuff. California is the most productive agricultural state in the union. Cause the almonds. Well, it's strawberries and uh-huh. asparagus. I mean, they grow everything there, but it's all based on this water that's pumped in from yeah. far off. Yeah. <clears throat> and, um, if that, if that spigot gets shut off, there's, I don't think you can grow anything down there except yucca. And there's millions of people there. Millions. It's scary. So that, that scares me. And then Texas too, like you can ranch in Texas, but most of Texas you can't plow. Can you? Not really. Just based on the rain and the, and, uh, I don't, I think it's, I think Texas is like Spain. It's, it's meant to be mostly. Well, we've got, we, here in Texas, the main crops you're going to find, you've got, you've got, uh, corn. Right. You've got, uh, cotton. You've got. Cotton. You got, yeah. You got rice. You got wheat. Now those take a lot of water. Cotton and rice. I think they rice. do peanuts and, uh, sugar, sugar cane, sunflower. Mm-hmm. And they got <laughs> you, 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 you sorghum. Sorghum. Yeah. Well, so I don't, you know, Texas is a big state, right? I'm sure yeah. it's got a thousand, thousand different environments, but maybe down by Houston where it's all muggy. Ugh, maybe they're God. growing. Houston's they're the growing, worst. They're growing rice in their backyards. Houston's just the worst. It really is. Dan, uh, rice won't grow at home. I, I, I said it, <laughs> I said it many years ago. John never has a second cup of rice at home. Hmm. Like Alaska, Alaska gr- has a, has a has a short growing season, but it's an intense growing season, right? Alaska grows those enormous cabbages. We grow a lot of food in Alaska. Yeah, I didn't a, realize in that. a very short amount of time because the sun is up all the time. Now, how does that affect? How does that affect the like the growth cycle of a plant? Is a plant does a plant need to rest in the way that a an an animal a mammal needs to needs to rest. Like, is it bad if you were to give a plant twenty four hours a day, seven days a week of light? Would it just be happy and grow, or would would there be problems? Like, if you know, 
if a plant doesn't it didn't need have to, a, a dream cycle, well, obviously it doesn't have a dream cycle, but does it need to recover in some way? It's a great question. And, uh, you know, I, <clears throat> I knew a lot of people that were engaged in the hydroponic growing of marijuana back yes, in the day. Right. Where right. Where you, you, you're doing this in your own house under a special lamp in a, in a mirrored box or something, right? <laughs> That's right. That's yeah. right. Tin, tin foil, aluminum foil, right. uh, put shiny side out uh, over the windows and <laughs> sometimes multiple lights. I had a couple of friends that had had uh, little uh, drip irrigation systems built up oh. so that, that, you know, the plants would be drip irrigated. And they had their lights on a kind of a complicated timer where the lights were on, then they went off. It, it was all very carefully calibrated, and I guess I assumed that the reason the lights went off at times was to either fool the plants into mm -hmm. thinking that something else was happening, or, okay. you know, then they could fool them that it was morning or something. Right. Or that the plants needed a dream. <laughs> I don't, I, I never figured it out. Was the weed better if the plants had dreams? Must have been. <laughs> I mean, you know, they, they were they were growing weed. The, the economy of that stuff never fully. The thing is that pot, a gram of weed, was ten dollars when I started smoking pot. One gram. I'm gonna look up a picture of how much that looks like. A gram of okay. pot. A gram of pot. It shows, uh, this picture that I'm looking at here shows two, uh, nugs <laughs> next to a quarter. And so a gram of weed looks like it is two quarter sized nuggets. That's what it looks. So that looks like a gram. Dan, that is... That is a, uh, the, if you're looking at the picture I'm looking at, that is a Canadian toonie. Yes, but that there's the, the, the next two, two down the line in Google Images shows a quarter. See, if somebody handed, if somebody gave me two little hairy balls like that uh -huh. and called it a gram, uh, yeah. I would have said, I would have said that it was, that this gram was short. I would okay. have called it a short, short gram. Short now, gram. Okay. Uh, it seemed to me that, that, um, you know, a gram isn't going to like completely fill the bottom of a baggie, uh, uh, like a little, a sandwich bag, but, but you should be able to, you should, you should be able to work your way through a gram of pot. That's why, that's why that's the basic in increment of pot smoking is one gram. How far would, would one gram go? Is that a, is that a, a joint? Is that a hit? I mean, what is, what is that? How does that work? What does it work out to be? I mean, when I first started smoking pot, I would keep a gram like tucked in my underwear drawer <laughs> and I would smoke a little bit every day, but it was back when I could just take like three little poof, poof, poofs and uh -huh. be like stoned as, as can be. <laughs> Uh, and then later on, later on in my pot smoking career, you know, I could smoke an eighth of pot a day if you had it laying around. Now I'm going to look up what one eighth, an eighth of an ounce you're talking about. Yeah. Eighth of an ounce of weed. One eighth ounce of weed. Okay. Now 
there is a picture. Oh, look at this. They've got a gram up next to a dollar bill on this one. Oh, here's, this is what I wanted. All right. Here's one image. Uh, yes, I am 21. <laughs> that uh, is a visual guide to cannabis quantities. I'm going to send oh. this. I'm going to send this to your uh, messages on your phone. You can tell me if that is what okay. you're thinking. Okay, so there's one gram. There's an eighth of an ounce, quarter ounce, half ounce. Wow, one ounce looks like a lot. It is a lot. And then here it says one gram, and they show a, a an average looking joint next to the one gram part. I feel like, and it might have been, it might have been that a lot of the grams that we used to buy in the day were kind of eyeballed, uh-huh. where it was just like somebody had some weed and they split it up into, you know, <laughs> you you know that an you know that an ounce has twenty eight grams. So if you buy an ounce, you should be able to split it up into twenty eight little piles. Right. And um, but you know the economy of being a pot dealer. <laughs> A lot of the time, if you were somebody that that had the had the upfront cash to either buy or produce ounces of pot, you didn't want to get down into this dumb selling dime bag grams to to uh, ding dongs. No, you would split split that stuff up into into quarters, right, or eighths, and sell those, and just get out of the like scumbag business because if you were if you were somebody that could buy <laughs> get get out of the scumbag business. <laughs> you know, because if you were somebody if you could buy a quarter a quarter ounce, uh-huh. if you had the money, if you had the money to buy a quarter. How much is a quarter ounce? How much would that be? You said um a gram was ten? Is that what you told me? Yeah, and you could get a quarter for sixty, I think. Okay. But we're talking about sixty bucks, Dan. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't, I never had 60 bucks. Well, not at one time. Certainly not 60 bucks to spend on a quarter, even though I liked to smoke pot. But if you could buy a quarter, I mean, I'm not saying that you're a high roller or mm. anything, but you're rolling higher. Yeah. You know, you're, you're, you're not sitting around dealing with like eighths. I mean, I could, I, I swear to God, I could tell you the number of times I could, I could buy an eighth. Counted, counted on a hand and a half. But you could finish an eighth in one session. Oh, that wasn't. See, I was. I'm. I'm a. I'm thrifty, Dan. Conservative. Yeah. And so I am not somebody who, when I have a plenitude of weed, say for instance, mm-hmm. that I think I'll always have weed and I smoke it like a style. Right. If I have a plenitude of weed that belongs to me. I divvy it up and I hide it all over the house and I put some in the freezer and I, you know, and I, I smoke it a little by just as, just as little as it takes because I want to make it last. And I recognize that you can get pretty stoned off of a few puffs of weed. Mm-hmm. The, the danger is that we get into this habitual, like I'm smoking it all day. Like every time I pull over, I have another hit. Yeah. Um, but I, I tend to kind of portion it out. But, Dan, there are all kinds of times in a pot smoker's life when one finds oneself in, the, in, in proximity to a ton of weed, a ton of weed that you can't take with you, but that you can smoke right. while you're there. So <clears throat> there, are, uh, there are people that spend a lot of money on weed. They don't even 
they don't even bat an eye at it. They just have an ounce of weed in the in the freezer at all times, or they mm-hmm. have an ounce of weed just laying around. My brother David, when we showed up at his house in July of nineteen eighty in July of nineteen eighty six, Kel McCarl and I bought one way tickets on Alaska Airlines out of Alaska to go on a great adventure across America. And we'd sometime in the in the winter of nineteen eighty six, Kel got kicked out of his house. And he showed up at my house. I'm talking about January of '86. <clears throat> he showed up at my house and he said, "I'm leaving. I'm I'm dropping out of school." Kel was not doing very well in school. I wasn't either. And he said, "I'm dropping out of school and I'm going down to America. You know, I'm driving to the lower 48. Are you with me?" <laughs> and I said, "No, no, Kel, I'm not." And the first reason I'm not is it's January and you're in a Scirocco. We're not, you and I are not going to drive the Alcan highway in January in a Scirocco. That's a suicide run. And he was like, I can't live here anymore. My dad kicked me out and my mom kicked me out oh, and I, man. you know, I'm, ah, I'm out. And I was like, Kel, you're not out. We'll go. We'll go to the low 48. We'll go across America. Just not in January. You had that much sense as a sort of stoner college kid to know not to do that during January? I wasn't a college kid. I was a I was seventeen year old uh, high school senior. Oh, even younger. But I was not yet a stoner. I didn't smoke pot in high school. Uh I looked down on it. I was a very judgmental kid, and I thought that stoners were losers. Mm -hmm. I I drank. But I had never taken LSD at that point. I'd never, I wouldn't even imagine buying another drug. People were, were doing cocaine all around me, but I was just extremely contemptuous of them. But I also was contemptuous of people that were having sex. I felt like uh, all of that behavior was um, unseemly and kind of beneath, beneath me that you would be having sex in high school. How disgusting. We would like to say thank you very much to HMA VPN. This is the VPN that you can count on. I'm telling the truth here about this. It is, you know what a virtual private network is? Do you even know what a VPN is? I'll tell you. A VPN allows you to surf the web anonymously and securely from anywhere with no restrictions. Okay, that's the whole point of it. Maybe you want to do stuff while you're... Listen... Maybe you want to do something while you're at work. I'm not, I don't care. It doesn't bother me, but you don't want that traffic being exposed on your, on your network. What if you're in a coffee shop? What if you're traveling? What if you're in a hotel? What if you're at the airport waiting for your flight? What if you're at your creepy friend's house and you don't want that traffic, no matter what it is, people always say, oh, it's good to have a VPN. Uh, if you're, if you're going to, you know, hit up your bank for something. Yeah. But even just checking your email, even just going to Gmail, even just regular stuff. You don't want that going out over those public networks that are everywhere. And a VPN gives you the freedom to know that you're going to be secure and all of the traffic and everything that you do is going to be secure no matter what network you're connected on. Browsing privately, surfing anonymously, HMA's VPN makes you untraceable. Nobody can track what you do, even your own internet provider. 
You're totally anonymous online. But what else is cool? You can watch anything anywhere. You can stream TV shows and content from anywhere in the world. So you won't miss your favorite shows either. Tons, tons of advantages to a VPN. But what makes HMA so good? They're the largest VPN service. They offer the most server locations in the world, uh, covering over 190 countries. They're not in Antarctica yet. I just wanted to let you know that. But th- what does that mean? That means there's always a server nearby, and that means things will be faster. They do not log your IP address, so there is no way for anyone to know what you do online. They don't even log it. And of course, they have, if you're a nerd like me, you want to know they've got 256-bit AES encryption, which makes your connection safe and sound. You can have five devices connected simultaneously, so you get your iPad, your laptop, your, uh, you know, your phone, and it works on all platforms, Android, iOS, Windows, Mac, Linux, routers. Tons of really great features. They even have something called a smart kill switch, which turns the VPN automatically on when you launch a sensitive app. It gets it. It knows your life, but not really because it's all anonymous. So I want you to try this risk-free with a 30-day money-back guarantee by going to, and here's the best part, www.hidemyass.com slash offer dash five by five. That's what HMA stands for. One more time, it's hidemyass.com slash offer dash five by five. They invented that URL. I'm fine with it because it means you're going to get 30-day money-back guarantee and it's going to be risk-free and you're going to support the show. So thanks very much to HMA VPN for making this show possible. Uh, that, and that was not something that was taught to me by my parents exactly. It was something just in me an innate um an innate kind of sensibility mm-hmm. where i felt like i mean the first time my friend kevin said that he had gone to third base with a girl i was like well are you sure you're ready for this <laughs> he was like <laughs> and I, he and i had a good relationship and his reaction to me at that point was like what is the matter with you? Right. That's not what a, when a teenage boy says he got to third base with a teenage girl, his best friend does not. It's like high five, right? Yeah. Right. Or like, wow, tell me more, whatever. And to say like, are you sure you're ready for this? You sound like an old man. And I, we used to have a, we used to have a gag. He would come to me for advice and I would pretend to smoke an imaginary pipe. Uh huh. He would say, he would say, (laughs) he would come and he was a year older than me. And, but he was, and he was much more sort of grown up than me, but he would come to me and say like, is the doctor in? And I would go, hang on. And I would pretend to like load my invisible pipe. Mm -hmm. And then I would sit and, and like, you know, puff on it to get it, to get it going. This is all just, uh, miming, you know, I'd sit and go, kind of light it and Uh Uh get my pipe stoked. And then I would take the pipe out, hold it in my hand and say, okay, go ahead. And then he would present whatever his problem was, his social problem or his, you know, his, his, whatever was plaguing him. And I would sit and kind of talk therapy him with it and, you know, kind of the same stuff that I do now. Yeah. I was doing when I was <coughs> 15. But it was frustrating to him because although I was a, I thought I was a good friend, I think I also was like extremely strange teenager. And... I I just would not abide sex and drugs, except that all my friends 
were doing sex and drugs. And, you know, Kevin was one of my uh, going – that group of friends descri- described them pl- themselves. Um, this is – I've never really said this, I don't think. In our school, there were – among the, like, upper middle class <clears throat> affluent white kids at East High in the 80s, class of 1986 – there was a division between the socias and the conserves. I did not coin these terms. The socias were made up of hockey players, uh, cheerleaders, people who liked to party, people with mullets, <sighs> people with, uh, with Chevy stepside pickups, uh, people who wore cowboy boots, people who wore acid wash jeans. Uh, the girls within the socias put a lot of product in their hair and had those giant bangs that looked like the clips of Dover. Oh, yeah. Those were the socias. <clears throat> and they were very proud of being socias. And it was the socias who... And I think the word "soch" is actually from a movie, like a teen movie. Okay, I don't I mean, it might even be from The Outsiders or something. I don't, I don't know. But the socias adopted it uh, for themselves, and then they described us, m- me and my group of friends, who were, you know, also upper middle class white kids, described us as the conserves because we were conservative which meant that we did not do cocaine. We didn't have sex at parties. We did not have, um, we didn't have conspicuous wealth. Like we didn't live in big, big houses and, and have new cars. We were the kids that had, we drove Volkswagens and Subarus and we did not wear cowboy boots or acid wash jeans. We sort of were preppy. And according to the socias, we were boring. We didn't, you know, no one ever got in fist fights. And there wasn't a ton of sex about it. Mm-hmm. There was not any even really pot smoking. I mean, there was a little, there was sex. Kevin got to third base. I think he even went all the way. But uh, my little group of friends who were called the conserves by the outsiders, we called ourselves, and this is terrible, it really is, but we called ourselves the Going Places Gang. (laughs) Now that was in in response to, I know, it was in response to the fact that (laughs) at a certain point we got tired of this. So conserve. <laughs> that's our title right there. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. We got tired of this social conserve thing. And I, re- I remember <clears throat> very clearly, and this is, this all sounds like a John Hughes movie. Was that said in a tongue in cheek way or was it serious? The going Both. places. <laughs> Both. Because it, it, because it evoked like the hole in the wall gang or whatever. It, it evoked like the, the apple dumpling gang. All right. The going places gang. <laughs> and what it meant was that all of, you know, all of the people in my, in my gang felt like they were foregoing 
all the hedonistic pleasures of teenage life in order that they go to the best colleges and become the right kind of people. And so there was a sort of smugness about not being on drugs, mm-hmm. not being conspicuously wealthy, because the, the, the smugness was based in the assuredness that that all of these, uh, all of our peers were going to burn out early and they were going to end up working for their parents. And we were on our way to, <clears throat> to join, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm having a little bit of a, <clears throat> I have a little condition over here. Mm. One, one time, and the, the story just gets worse and worse. I was on the ski lift it was a beautiful day. I was up there with a friend riding the ski lift and I looked down and here come a bunch of the Soch boys skiing together. Now skiing also was a place where I don't, I can't think of an environment other than maybe if you played polo where there's more opportunity to be snobby and yeah. classist right. and asshole than on a ski mountain. And there was a very clear distinction between ski racers and free doggers. Now I was a racer. And the thing is that there were, there were a few guys that you would, there are plenty of people on the racing team that qualified as socias. My year, 1986, was kind of an unusual year. It was not a it was not a great year for ski racers from East High. Uh-huh. There were a lot of ski racers from West High and Diamond and Service, and they were all probably socias in their own schools. But at East High in '86, there weren't that many ski racers. There were a lot of free doggers, and free doggers. Ski however they want. They flop around. They carve with both edges. They lean way back on their skis. They they have rear entry boots. They tie handkerchiefs around their ankles. I don't know what they do. They ski without hats, Dan. They wear jeans. They wear jeans. I don't know what to say about that. Whereas ski racers adhere to a very strict code. I'm talking 1986 now. Who knows what it's like now? But in 1986, ski racers adhered to a, a pretty rigid dress code. You wore certain kinds of ski wear. It was important that it be that it be assembled correctly. But most importantly, it was you were uh, visibly a ski racer by the way that you skied. Your technique, your style, your panache would be evident from a mile away. If I were sitting on the ski lift right now, looking at Mount Alieska in 1985, I would be able to pick out the people that had trained as racers. I would be able to pick out the people who were extremely good skiers but had never trained as racers. And so they looked amazing and they skied really well, but you could just tell they hadn't raced. I could tell the people that were good skiers, but, um, 
but at, at that point, like I had already drawn the line on them, like, nah, nah, you're fine. You know, and I'm doing them looking down at people that are having a great time, right? They're spending a bunch of money having a great time skiing. And I'm just like, no, nope, sorry. The way that he just made that turn, like X's you out of, of the world. But I'm on this lift. I'm, and the thing is, there were so many codes, so many rules. Like the way you sat on the ski lift, the way you tucked your poles up under your, under your like outboard leg, the way that you swung your skis while you were riding the lift, all these things communicated status. And, mm. um, and even within the status, what your status was. Where you, where you fit in the hierarchy. I was never at the top of the hierarchy or even in the top of the middle because I was, I was a good skier, but not a great one. Anyway, I'm riding the ski lift and here come the Soch boys and they've got their mullets flying in the wind and their acid wash jeans and you know, they're rich kids, right? So they have, they have expensive equipment but they're terrible skiers. Now they're, they're not terrible skiers. They would, they would look like good skiers to anyone, but I could tell that they were terrible, mm -hmm. awful, even embarrassingly bad. And they come skiing down. It's a beautiful sunny day. They come skiing down and the guy in the lead comes like shushing to a stop right beneath the chairlift. And his five buddies all come shushing up and they all shush to a stop in a little group. And just as I pass over their heads, one of them says, yeah, we're the brat pack. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> and I had never been given such a gift. Dan. <laughs> I had never been given such a like wrapped up little you know, little, uh, like nativity as this moment. Yeah. We're the brat pack. And in the style of a 15 year old, I said more like the butt pack. And they all looked up and there I was just hovering above uh -huh. them. But also like hovering, but also on a fast moving chairlift. So then I was gone. Right, 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 right. <laughs> I dropped my, my bone mo, my, my grenade butt pack and then was, and then flew away. And all they could do was shout, you know, like you, but by the grace of God, Dan, it stuck. The person sitting next to me on the lift was a member of this whole clan. Mm -hmm. The story got reported. You're never going to believe what happened. And Butt Pack actually, because it was outrageous that they called themselves the Brat Pack. Oh, That's yeah. terrible. No, it's the worst. The Brat Pack is how they thought of themselves. So anyway, Butt Pack is what they ended up being called. By everyone except them. Yeah. It was a, it was truly a triumph. <laughs> it was a big, a big moment. High school takedown. But, but in contrast, we were the going places gang. The going right. places gang. Now, was that known? Uh, 
the, the problem was that senior year, Rick Garnett, who thought that he was above all rules, even above the rules of the going places gang, started to date one of the Soshas. It was outrageous. Rick went across the aisle and started dating not just a Soch girl, but one of the most Soch. The girl that kind of defined a certain, she, she was the, she was one of the Soch girls that was very conscious of being Soch Mm -hmm. and very much like, here's how it's going to go. She was not a passive person, let's say. Right. And they briefly had, you know, had what was a, um, what, what could have been a bridge mending relationship in the sense that we were suddenly all at the same parties because we had, you know, because Rick was one of us and Brian, she was one of them and there we were all at the same places, but it was a very uneasy detente. It didn't last. But during that time, I think Rick gave away all of our codes. So then we started getting mocked for, for, uh, the problem, the thing was, Dan, I was not going places. I was the one member of the going places gang that was going nowhere. Um, cause I graduated last in my class. So I was an outlier within my own clan and Kel like my friends were extremely concerned that I even knew Kel, let alone that I liked Kel, let alone that Kel and I were, had a separate, uh, culture. And I think by the halfway through the scene, my senior year, my friends, the, the going places gang Mm -hmm. started to, they never like edged me out, but there started to be, there were, there, there started to be events where I uh, would hear about it later. And it was because people were pairing off, you know, dating one another, going to things as couples. But there would be a thing where Kevin and Tammy and Kelly and Eric and Rick had gone and done something. And I, and I heard about it later. So you were, you were excluded and found out after the fact that things had happened without you. Yeah. And it didn't feel. Feels terrible. I would imagine. Well, but it didn't feel like like I was excluded so much as it didn't occur to them to invite me because I was, there was a, there was a, there was an important moment, a seminal moment, which was Tammy had a birthday party and we were at that age where there were a few members of the group that had turned 18. Kevin turned 18 in November of our senior year, you mm-hmm. know, and I was still 17 and mm-hmm. I had only just turned 17. A lot of the, you know, it was that senior year thing. Half the kids are older, old enough. They're grown ups now. Tammy had a birthday party and the party was held at the mush in motel. 
We would like to say thank you very much to Feels. You know why? Because most people experience stress. I know I do. People have anxiety, chronic pain, trouble sleeping. If you have any of these things, and again, I think, I think we all do, you're not alone. And the thing that has helped me the most with all of those issues is CBD. And there are so many companies out there nowadays making CBD. And to, let me be honest with you, it's crap. Most of what's out there is not good. They don't do testing. They don't care about the ingredients. In some cases, there's like almost no CBD in the CBD that they're selling you. And sometimes there's other things that you don't want. Sometimes there's THC in there. And that's not the point of CBD. The point of CBD is to help you with stress, to help you be calm, to help you be focused, to help you sleep better, to help with inflammation after your workout, not to get you high. That's not the point of CBD. So it's very important that you get your CBD from a really good, really reliable company. And I really like what Feels does with their CBD. They have, first of all, it's so hard to know how much CBD you should be using and and how to get started with it. They have real human support. You can call them on their free CBD hotline. You can text message them to get support. And they will help you figure all this out. They even have a little CBD flight that they can send you that's like samples that help you try different strengths. So you know, oh, you know what? Maybe this entry level one is fine, but maybe you need the mid-level one. Maybe you need the extra strength one. You're going to figure it all out and they're there to help you. And the main thing to know about high quality CBD like this is that you feel better naturally. This works naturally. There's no high, there's no hangover, there's no addiction. It's, it's just something that can help you in the most natural, simple way. I have been using CBD for three or four years now on a regular basis and feels make some really amazing CBD. They mix their CBD with um, organic MCT oil. So again, like they care about all of this stuff. Every single package You can see the test results for the package on the back of it. And you can go online and like read about that particular batch. And I mean, it's really, really great. And, uh, and it really will help you feel your best. It's working for me and I'm a big advocate of CBD. There's a special URL for you to visit. Feels is spelled F E A L S feels F E A L S.com feels.com slash roadwork. Go there. Obviously you support the show but you'll also get 50% off your first order and you'll get free shipping. Again, feels.com slash roadwork. Become a member, get 50% off automatically your first order and free shipping. Great, uh, great stuff that they're doing and I want you to go check it out. So thanks very much to Feels for making this show possible. This was... What was the name of it? The Mush Mush Inn. Mush No, Mush Inn. The Mush Inn Motel um, is a motel in downtown Anchorage that... Um, so like what you say to the, the dogs, the dog sled, mush, yeah. mush, like that? Yeah, that's it. Okay. That's it. Okay. Mush on in to the Mush Inn Motel. Uh, the Mush Inn <clears throat> was kind of famous at the time as a seedy hotel on the edge of town and the mush Inn is still a 
seedy hotel on the edge of town. And by seedy, I mean dangerously gross. Mm. Um, Looking at it right now on TripAdvisor, I just just put it up here. Uh, It has a 1.5 rating. Uh, There are pictures here on TripAdvisor of stained mattresses, like stained with with blood. Mm, Lovely. The the mushin was not quite that bad in 1985, but it was extremely bad. And Tammy, like, let's see, here's an article that says, um, uh, a lawsuit was filed against the owners of the mushin claiming that they abuse and prey on the most vulnerable members of the community and continue to rent units after the municipality of Anchorage uh, gives them notice of serious habitability problems. Uh, Bed bugs, leaks, rodents, roaches, etc. Now, Now, it wasn't, it had not quite become a slum. At the time, it was the place that you went and got like the honeymoon suite, which had like a heart-shaped bathtub. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, there were there were motel rooms that had themes. It was basically a place that you would go with a hooker. But it was also like a f- kind of fun CD. Gross. It was gross. But it was like, for us, it was also cheap. And for for high school students, it felt like very, very risky and cool. And that oh, was yeah. the thing about the going places gang. Although we weren't doing cocaine, we definitely had a sense of, um, we, we definitely had a sense of risk. We used to drive around town and, uh, it, uh, like a big group of us in, in two cars, right? Eight, eight of us driving around town. And we had a list of all of the like church dances and like sober house dances and, you know, dances that were being put on in the basement of a Catholic church to keep kids off drugs. Yeah. Right. We would drive around town with this, with this list and like show up at a church and just eight of us roll into the, to the, the teen dance that up until that point had been a bunch of kids that were, that had been sort of forced to go to this by their parents um, on a Saturday night instead of being allowed to go do something fun. And we'd, we'd, we'd walk into these dances and they were just the most depressing, um, like sad affairs. And we would come in and just start dancing and going crazy and dancing with all the, the kids that had been forced to be there. And we just really I don't, it seems crazy now. It seems like the type of thing that like, were we inspired by footloose or something? We were trying to, and it's actually not very, considering that the socias were probably having orgies. Uh It seems a little tame, Yeah, but it felt, it felt risky because we were just rolling into places. We didn't know anything about them. They were, they were often environments that were kind of tightly controlled by adult chaperones and we would come in and just just set the place on ear anyway the mushin motel party 
became a kind of infamous event because everybody was there, even like juniors. There might have even been the sophomores there. It was an enormous party, and and the Kevin and the the uh, the older boys had rented several rooms, including the the honeymoon suite. And all these kids had somehow lied to their parents in such a way that they were going to be able to spend the night. Oh yeah, at the Mushin Motel, they were like, "I'm going to a slumber party," and so there were, you know. I don't know how many rooms devoted to this party, but, but the part, you know, it was the type of thing where you'd be in one room and then you'd go across cause it's a, Oh, uh, it's a motel, not a hotel. So the doors all open to the parking lot mm. or like they're little, they're sort of buildings of the mush in motel and you can go up the stairs to the second floor, look down over the balcony, come down, you know, it's like one of these places. It's kind of a little bit of a little bit of a complex. Well, Kel and I, again, I, I, th- this couldn't happen today. Kel and I dressed all in black <laughs> with black watch caps. And we parked a few blocks away and we had pellet rifles. And we snuck up the alley to the Mushin Motel and situated ourselves. Well, so what we'd done is we had these we had these pe- pellet rifles, long long barreled pellet rifles that were meant to shoot cans or whatever. But we'd taken the rifles at some earlier time, and we'd put them in a vice, and we'd sh- we'd hacksawed the barrels off of them mm-hmm. making sawed off right sawed off pellet rifles which is not the that's not the way pellet rifle barrels are designed right a pe- pellet rifle barrel is actually a a hollow tube that looks like a gun barrel and then inside of it is a is a smaller tube where the pellet goes and when you saw them off, when you saw a barrel off, what you have then is a uh, you've sawed off the thing that kept the little barrel situated within the larger barrel. So now you have a you have a little the barrel where the pellets go is kind of a little bit it's kind of floating in the space, and you can you can wedge a little piece of matchstick or whatever in there to kind of keep it stable, but it's it's no longer an accurate weapon. Let's just say that. Right. And what we would do is it, because we had made sawed off shotguns, basically we would then put several BBs in at once, as many as you could fit in there. So when you shot it, it would send a little, <laughs> so it's stupid. I can't believe them. Oh, and now I got to hear it. I got it. Now I got to hear this. Can't remember. I can't believe I'm remembering all this, but you would shoot it and it would come out as a little shotgun pattern. Now, none of the BBs were traveling very fast. Uh-huh. Like in, in Song Off the Barrel, we eliminated all the velocity and all of the accuracy. And we just created these annoyance weapons where we'd put 
five BBs in it and shoot it. And it would just send a little pattern of BBs out at about just fast enough, just fast enough to sting, but not fast enough to, to pierce the skin or probably not even fast enough to put out an eye. It Mm. was just like, we just made these and we did it knowing that was our intent. Right. So we had these sawed off and well, we also sawed the stocks off. I mean, we made, we basically tried to make the, the shotgun that Mel Gibson carried in road warrior Mm -hmm. that would fit in like a, like a holster. Yeah. Anyway, we showed up at the mush in motel and I think it was, I think I had a feeling, a strong feeling. I don't remember, but I feel like I hadn't been invited. And you know, Tammy's, Tammy was one of my inner circle. Tammy was Kevin's girlfriend, Mm -hmm. just as much as Kelly was mine. And Tammy and Kelly were best friends. For me not to have been invited to Tammy's birthday party at the Mushin Motel, that is more than an oversight. Right. That was intentional. There was malice there. There was. Because I was spending a lot of time with Kel. Too much time. And Kel, there was no way Kel was ever going to be accepted as even a peripheral adjunct member of the Going Places gang. No chance. Kel didn't want to be, first of all, but Kel couldn't have, Kel did not meet the qualifications. And it was, and me hanging out with Kel and all of the people that Kel introduced me to, it kind of made the fact that that combined with the fact that I was last in our class, I mean, I'd always been a black sheep. But I think what it gave, there have been a lot of times in my life where people have felt like, well, this confirms it. This latest bit of intel confirms that John is not going to make it. He's not, John is not flourishing, right? At several different times in my life, it seemed like I was about to fall out the bottom of the world. And there were a lot of people that at different times of my life, friends of mine who sort of were stealing themselves to hear bad news about me or feeling like, well, can't get too close to him because, you know, you don't want to get dragged down. And somehow by the grace of God, each time I, um, I did not fall out the bottom of the world, but this was one of those times. All of the, all of my friends, they just wanted to go off to good colleges. They just, they, their senior year was almost over. They just wanted to leave Anchorage with a good reputation and go off to Johns Hopkins or whatever and not have any lasting scars Mm -hmm. any more than they already, uh, any more than the psychological scars that you get from growing up in Anchorage. So Kel and I showed up at this party dressed all in black, head to toe, gloves, (laughs) watch caps, carrying sawed off shotguns. And we got there late enough in the evening that everybody was drunk. And we started walking around the shadows of this motel, picking people off. 
Um, and at first, nobody knew where it was coming from. People started, you know, screaming. I mean, how, ah! how, how, how bad was this hurting people? It's, it was like getting hit with five BBs. It stung. Was his flesh was, being broken? No. Okay. No, no, no. I mean, and this is winter in Alaska. Everybody's, I mean, the thing is we were in winter in Alaska. We were cool. We didn't all wear snow pants and, right. and, you know, big puffy jackets all the time. Everybody had their tight jeans on and their, and their, uh, their boat shoes or whatever. It was just cold. So we were, and the thing is when you're really cold, BBs sting a little bit extra. Okay. Right. Because you're already cold. Anyway, we, we, the, the way the mush in was configured, you could hide behind, you know, hide in a doorway or hide behind a wall. It took a long time for people to realize that we were there and where the BBs were coming from. Right. And then once someone shouted, because people started running around, you know, like, ow. Once someone shouted like, it's John and Kel. Then we just went into uh, the kind of Terminator mode of just walking up and down the halls, slowly loading our guns and shooting BBs at people, absolutely ruining the party. Now, looking back at it, it is 100% an active shooter situation. Right, sure. And in, in the world today, it would have been a major police incident. And it, it shares some DNA with the, with the psycho shooter situation. You know, Kel and I were, had been excluded from this party and this right. was our reaction. Right. But we, but we were doing it with a kind of like, I mean, there was just a giant LOL over the top of, of, um, we knew that we weren't doing any real harm. We were just trying to ruin the party. And I think we did. Uh, Tammy spent, Tammy didn't forgive me, I don't think, all the way, ever again. Um, it drove a wedge between us. And it was maybe the final straw in my um, exclusion from the conserves. At the end of that party, I, I feel like I had, I had proved to them that I was not worthy of their friendship. I see. And in part, I guess it was me saying, I'm leaving now mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I'm part of, I'm, and I'm, and actually it was the moment that I said, I'm going down. Um, I'm intentionally going down now. I'm going to follow Kel as far down as Kel and I go, and I'm going to keep going down from there. And it, it feels almost like a conscious choice. But Kel, I, th I think it was right then that Kel was like kicked out of his house and Kel was kicked out of his house for good cause. And he wanted to leave in his Scirocco and I, told him that we needed to stick around. We needed to graduate from high school and we could leave the next day if we wanted. 
and it mollified him. He went and, you know, I think he probably slept in his car for a few nights and Mm -hmm. then went and made some, some bargain with his mom that if he could sleep in the garage, he wouldn't be, you know, there was some, he made some deal and we did, we did graduate from high school. We did leave almost immediately afterwards. We bought a, you could buy a ticket to Seattle for a hundred bucks then. I remember as I left, I owed Kelly, I owed her $200. I don't remember why she'd loaned it to me. Uh, she'd loaned it to me to like, uh, we were, we, in a way we were so responsible. Like she loaned it to me to pay some application fee or so. I don't remember what it was, but I'd, I'd owed her this money for a long time. And she had given me the impression that she'd written it off. Like, well, I'll never see that money again. Again, part of like this feeling that I had, that I was excluded now from our gang. I had, mm-hmm. I was irresponsible. I was, I was not of our, I was not of our class anymore. I had become low class. And I remember I, I met Kelly and I'd gone to the bank and gotten $200 in $1 bills. And I handed her this, what I did, I I guess I took the $200, I put it in a VCR, like a video cassette box, taped it up and handed it to her and said, don't open it until I'm on the plane. She was like, what the fuck is this? You know? <laughs> then she opened it and it was $200 in $1 bills, which was a big deal, you know? Right. It was a lot of money. And yeah. She never expected to see it. And I feel stupid because she was dating some other guy at the time. And I think they probably just went and spent it on themselves. I was like, fuck, why did I do that? I should I, she was, she'd already decided she wasn't going to get it. Why did I pay her? <laughs> you wanted to make it right. Exactly. Too moral. But the, the way this story got started is Kel and I flew down to Seattle and we got off the plane and we realized that we didn't have anywhere to go. We had made no plans. We didn't, either of us, it didn't seem like we remembered how big of a town Seattle was, <laughs> but we had not thought about what we were going to do when we got off the plane. We didn't even That's have crazy, a, John. This is crazy. We didn't have we didn't have the beginning of an idea, and we got off the plane and we're we're in the airport with our little backpacks, having left Alaska to go ar- around the world, and we honestly looked at each other and we're like, "Uh, well, well, what do we do now?" And it was like late afternoon. We kind of were like. Uh, walked out, looked around. It was like, I think we thought that maybe there would be like a Volkswagen bus for sale right there (laughs) for like 300 bucks. And I, I said, well, you know, my brother lives here, my brother, David. And so I went to a phone booth and looked him up in the phone book. This all sounds like it's from a thousand years ago. Right. It's like a 1970s, you know, cop movie. Yeah. I put a dime in the 
payphone, maybe. <laughs> right. Maybe it, maybe it wasn't even a quarter yet. Yeah. Called him and he answered. And I was like, hey, DR, it's me, John, your little brother, your 17 year old brother. What was the, what was the age difference between you and him? He was 37. Oh, okay. So that's a 20 year difference. Yeah. 37, 36, something like that. And he didn't like me, had never liked me. And I had never contacted him independently or otherwise. Mm -hmm. If I was at a family gathering or a cocktail party, I would avoid him. Mm -hmm. So here he gets this phone call. Hey, it's me, your brother. I'm here in Seattle with a friend. We just landed and we're about to head off across America. <laughs> but we don't have any money. We don't really have any money and we don't have any ideas and we don't know what to do. Can we stay with you? And he was like, Ugh. he said, look, I'll come get you and you can spend the night here tonight. But after that, you have to go. You can't mm. stick around. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to babysit you. I'm not going to sh show you the ropes or anything like that. I'll give you a place to crash. And we we're like, okay, great. Thanks. And so he shows up in some ratty ass car that smelled like cigarettes. And he drove us out to his house in Wallingford. And it was a, like a hippie house. It was nice. I mean, it was, you know, he had ferns and, and, um, hippie tapestries over the windows. Uh -huh. I think he was living there with a lady. And we came in and he was like, you guys can crash on the couch. And right in the center of the coffee table was a bowl, a wooden bowl that was as big. It was big enough to hold two bags of microwave popcorn and the popcorn wouldn't be, wouldn't be spilling over the top like a big wooden mixing bowl. Uh-huh. And it was full of buds heaped, heaped with buds where the buds were like falling over the sides. Buds like so, so many buds. I had never seen that many buds. <laughs> and you're like, and, I'm not leaving. What are you talking about? Well, no, the thing was, Dan, I didn't smoke pot. Still at this point, still. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. I had smoked pot and it had been, it was one of those times Mark Renner and I went out in his little S10 pickup and parked in the parking lot behind, uh, behind the Alaska native hospital and I smoked pot for the first time, but I didn't get high and it was boring. And I was like this stupid cough, cough, cough. Uh -huh. And then I smoked it a second time and I got a little bit high, but I was like, this is not, this is pretty dumb. So I was not yet a confirmed pot smoker mm. and this bowl of buds as fantastic as it was, it held no appeal. For me, I was not like, 
Whoa. But Kel definitely smoked pot. And Kel, his jaw hit the floor. He'd never seen that many buds either. And for that many buds to just be on the coffee table suggested a wealth of buds elsewhere. Right. An enormous pile of buds access to dope at a level that we just couldn't comprehend. My brother was a drug person. And this was just like a bowl of M&Ms on the table. (laughs) But as he's putting us to bed, he said he had that thing and it's a, you know, it's a thing in the family or whatever, where he looked at me and said like, don't smoke any of my buds. (laughs) And I think what he meant was he didn't think I was, you know, like he didn't want the responsibility for me getting hooked on drugs. I don't know what his logic was. I think he was just greedy and didn't want me to smoke his buds. But I, but Kel, I looked at Kel and said, do not steal any of my brother's buds. And Kel was like, oh, dude. I was like, I'm serious. Those are my brother's buds and don't steal any. That's a lot to ask of, uh, of Kel, I think. It was. And Kel said, he won't even notice. There's so many buds. I'll just take a couple. And I was like, no, (laughs) do not. I'm drawing the line on stealing my brother's buds. But I know Kel pretty well, even now. And I'm pretty sure that Kel stole some of my brother's buds. He told me he didn't. But I cannot imagine that Kel left those buds alone. Thank you.